Welcome to BIV Today, the daily podcast from the newsroom of business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk Point, publisher and editor-in-chief. Uh, the environment for federal politics has changed considerably in the last few weeks, of course, with uh, not only the conflict in Ukraine, uh, the Russian invasion, uh, but the announcement just this week of a pact between the Liberals and NDP to coalesce the two parties to govern until June 2025. Uh, my guest today and I were uh, talking about very different things that we were going to discuss uh, when we uh, when we set this appointment up. But um, we have to talk a little bit about the change conditions because it really does set the stage for a different House of Commons in the time ahead. And it likely means uh, very different strategies for both the government and the opposition as it pertains to British Columbia and our economy. To get a gauge, though, on this changing landscape, I've turned to a bit of a veteran in the House of Commons now. Carrie Lynn Finley is the Conservative MP in South Surrey, White Rock. She's a former cabinet minister in the Harper government. Good to see you. Good to see you, Kurt. Thanks for the opportunity today and your interest. I have to start with the most recent stuff. Just uh, uh, I, I sat uh, reading some things on Monday night and suddenly this pops up. Um, was this expected? No, I would say it wasn't expected, uh, although the NDP has definitely been propping up the government through the aftermath of the 2019 and 2021 elections, both ending in a minority, as you know. So uh, to a certain extent, they formalized something that was happening on the ground. But I was looking myself at a, back at a few headlines, and I saw that our Previous leader, Erin O'Toole, had several times mentioned this coalition and uh, many uh, in the media were saying that he was a conspiracy theorist and he was talking nonsense and there's no such thing and here we are with a formalized deal. So we have a new NDP Liberal government, frankly, one that the, uh, as we see it, the voters did not vote for this. They voted for a minority parliament twice. Uh, but this is a different scenario now. Yeah. By the way, sometimes conspiracies are true. <laughs> they, they're That's not true. all. They're That's not true. all just theories. Absolutely um, true. Uh, listen, though, um, how does it change the complexion now um, of of the way in which parties had been working together, including the Conservatives with the Liberals on occasion, and maybe with the NDP yeah. on occasion? How, how does it change that? It could be quite a dramatic change, in fact, and some of these questions are yet to be answered because, as you said, this is literally breaking news, hot off the press kind of thing, but it raises a lot of procedural questions in the House. If you have one party guaranteeing that they will vote uh, on any confidence motions, any budget bills, uh, and in general policy with another party, are they really then a fourth party in the House anymore? What is their role on crucial things like the review of the Emergencies Act, which was very controversial uh, at the time of the trucker convoy? There were arguments made why the chairs should be held by the third and fourth parties, for instance, uh, because the argument by the government was, well, neither uh, the Liberal Party in government, nor the opposition, who had a very different point of view and voted against that act, should be running the review. Well, if you now have a combined party of NDP, Liberal, should there it be a Liberal chair there? 
procedurally in the House, there's different ways government is treated than uh, the fourth party, even down to whose lobby they should be in. Should they be in the lobby with the other opposition parties? Because part of the written agreement is if, if they are aware of anything that could affect legislation, policy, procedures in the House that could affect the government, they must inform them. Well, that makes it pretty hard to share a lobby then if you're really not in opposition anymore. It's a subsuming, quite frankly, of the NDP party into the Liberal Party, the way it's laid out. Do you kind of consider that that's the way that will ultimately shake out, uh, that, that essentially the NDP will get some short-term gains, but have some, um, I guess, as John Crosby once put it, uh, long-term pain for the short-term gain here? It's hard for me to know where the NDP leadership is at. I know there are individual members of both the Liberals and NDP parties who are not happy with this merger, if you will, uh, or marriage, some people are calling it, uh, because they have fought each other. And BC is the classic example. Quite often, federal elections are fought. The primary players are not necessarily Liberals and Conservatives. It's Liberals versus NDP or Conservatives versus NDP in terms of who the front runners are in a riding where everyone here thinks BC is a little different politically and they're absolutely right about that. So you're talking about people who actually have not always, it's certainly at the riding level, uh, been uh, compatriots and in fact have fought each other. So as far as their leadership is concerned, I understand why a small party would feel they would gain influence by a deal like this. But quite honestly, if the Liberal Party had wanted to bring in broader health care like dental care, if they had wanted to bring in um, other policies that the NDP are promoting, which all have a very big price tag, by the way, um, they could have done it. Mm-hmm. So I, it's hard to actually see from our perspective what the NDP has gained by this. And they take a real risk like I said, of being subsumed within the other party. They're not being given any ministerial positions. They're not being given any titles, if you will. Uh, This is all going to be in the back room, things that are worked out between them. And how can you be independent if you've actually signed that you will reveal and discuss anything that might be contrary to what the Liberals are doing? So it truly is more of a, a merging, and I don't think that's what the Canadian voters uh, voted for. They uh, voted for independent thought and different parties for a reason. Yeah, I, I read a commentary yesterday by Kamal Kerr, the former NDP leader, who basically said the Liberals got 100% of the power for 30% of the vote. Uh, it's pretty, pretty nice. Um, but I want to then take a look at what you think it means for a conservative opposition, because here you are, uh, you were at least until last week stationed as a party that could uh, make representations, perhaps influence, you know, maybe influence the NDP in order to come come forward uh, and and join you in support for something. Now your your calls are going to be um, unreturned, I guess, on that one. What, what do you think it means for the conservatives? 
I think it does make it more difficult uh, and it certainly makes it more concerning because we believe that there has to be a reining in of federal spending, not cutting things necessarily, but uh, a more prudent approach to spending. We've had such profligate spending, not just around COVID. We, we did a Team Canada approach with that. We voted mm -hmm. with subsidies and things for small business, of course, but in and for individuals. But in terms of moving forward and coming out of COVID, the, like I said, the price tag on a lot of these NDP liberal government proposals now are very high. And we're talking the hundreds of billions of dollars at a time when inflation is a real concern. Groceries are prices are up, gas prices are up. BC is the worst. Every time someone is, uh, I got a tear in their eye about gas prices somewhere else in Canada, I tell them what they have in BC. I'm not even sure they believe me they're so high. And that's a combination of, of reasons and a combination of taxes upon the cost. But Inflation is real and a driver of inflation, it, which is now over 5%, is definitely uh, printing money and just spending, spending. Government spending has to, uh, we have to get control of it. And we're very concerned that this is going to make it even more difficult. As far as where we are in terms of cooperating, yes, we had opportunities before, although NDP always voted with the Liberal government on the big issues, as did uh, the two Green Party members for the most part. But there were motions before the House and other things of, uh, that we feel are very important for Canadians where we were able to work with the opposition parties and actually defeat the government on a vote. I doubt that's going to happen now. Yeah. Does the emphasis? Sorry, I couldn't hear you. Does the emphasis now the Senate for uh, for where um, things could could possibly stall? Is it kind of up to the conservative senators and some of the independents there to um, to put a bit of a rein in on a, on this consolidated liberal NDP? It could be, and certainly, again, the Emergencies Act was a good example of that, where it looked very 50-50-ish whether the Senate would approve of that bill, and then the Prime Minister pulled it and ended it uh, when they hadn't even finished their debate. So there is a recent example where the Senate uh, might have gone a bit differently. But overall, the Senate's a very different place than it used to be a few years ago when uh, the Conservatives were in government, where the um, divisions within the Senate and the allocations were a lot more traditional. And now we have these various Senate groups, and sometimes it's hard from the House perspective to understand where those alignments will go. Sure. Does it then also take uh, the emphasis of the House of Commons out of play a little bit and um, now make for the Conservatives in particular uh, their, um, their proving ground or their testing ground on their ideas um, more, more or less spread across the country instead of that Ottawa focus, do you think? 
It's, it's very, this is a very unique workplace. And of course we deal with national issues that do overlap at times into provincial jurisdiction. But generally speaking, um, we don't work in terms of policy with our provincial counterparts on where we put things forward here. And sometimes there's agreement, sometimes there's disagreement. Um, so I'm not sure that that is going to change particularly. Uh, we know where we emphasize uh, on the conservative side, like I said, we're very concerned about the cost of living. We're very concerned about inflation. The fact that we're constantly being told, well, it's not our fault, nothing to do with us. It's a global phenomenon. That's not actually accurate. It is a combination of factors, but spending here is a big one. And this is what people talk about literally as they say around the kitchen table, kitchen table issues are, how am I gonna pay my mortgage? The cost of housing in the lower mainland is so high, and not just uh, to buy a home, but to rent. Uh, and then the cost of day-to-day -day getting to and from work and groceries and all these things, you know, we estimate it's going to cost just in groceries alone at the current inflation rate of 5.1, an extra $1,000 a year. Uh, when you, uh, if you're a student going to UBC or KPU or SFU or wherever, Langara, and uh, you used to be able to drive a car because your family lives in my riding, for instance, close to the border, um, you know, you may, you may not be able to do that. It just changes your whole lifestyle. So these are the kinds of things that I think unites people in concern across the country. And, uh, you know, we are looking at here federally. So then, um, aside the new setting, the new environment for this, and maybe focus a bit on what are, in, in your view, the priorities that any government, uh, whether minority or, or something that's a bit of a faux majority right now, um, has to focus on for British Columbia. You talk about affordability, and you know, obviously some some tax reform would likely accompany that. And you've been a minister of revenue, you know very well about the system. Um, what do you think are the are the necessary priorities now that look now that we're locked in until at least June 2025 on what has to happen for this province? There's some things that are unique to BC, and there's some things that aren't that are universal across the country and certainly cost of living as I've mentioned and the impact of inflation, the increase in uh, mortgage rates, interest rates, this is uh, of concern across the country. So uh, where Canadians are really struggling to make ends meet and we see so many young people giving up on the idea of even owning things that my generation even if we couldn't afford it when we were young, we felt we could work hard and get there. I saw a recent Bloomberg report that said, we'll just get used to not owning anything and you know, uh, traveling by transit and um, get out your bicycle. And I'm not saying those are bad things, but I still, I'm a mother of four and they're all young adults now. And I see them starting to uh, make decisions and wanting to get ahead and it's quite prohibitive. So these are things we have to think about what we can do to help average Canadians. Small business owners 
have been and remain the backbone of our economy. They've been hit so hard with the pandemic and restrictions. And we need to look at ways to decrease red tape. Um, this was something I focused on a lot when I was in cabinet and uh, in fact, got an award from CFIB for red tape cutting, which I was very proud of. And uh, I'd like to see the current government get an award for cutting red tape. Instead, they increase it. We need to, uh, you mentioned tax reform. I think it's long overdue here in Canada. I, you know, it's, it's too complicated. Even under our government, we, we favored, and this government as well, boutique credits and things that get so complicated. Uh, people yep. really shouldn't have to hire. Um, I'm sorry to all the tax professionals who might be listening here, but you know, people with simple situations in their income shouldn't feel they have to hire someone to uh, put in an income tax return. And yet that is happening all the time. So that review of the tax system is important. Uh, we need to get federal spending under control uh, and get out of these lockdowns federally and end to mandates and end to lockdowns. The provincial governments have taken the lead on that. We need to do this federally as well. Um, the other thing is the pandemic, I think definitely has exposed cracks in our healthcare system and reminded us all that we need to strengthen it. I believe, and the Conservatives believe, that the federal government should pay its fair share. When the Conservative government was in, we every year grew our transfers to the provinces on health care by 6%. So at the end of nine years, it was up 54%. We signaled that we would be probably halving that. And then that's exactly what the Liberal government has done. They've averaged around 3% per year. In the midst of a pandemic with the pressures on our provincial healthcare systems we've seen, that has not changed. There's been other spending, but not spending to help the provinces that have all asked for that kind of help from the federal government on healthcare. So I, I do think this, we're talking about priorities of spending, and that's one place where we feel more has to be done to help the provinces. It's also exposed a lot of mental health issues. Uh, people are suffering, who've lost businesses, who've lost incomes, are suffering because of mandates. Their uh, kids have been home from school and some have not adjusted well to that. And uh, we have the opioid epidemic, which is uh, rampant in British Columbia. So there needs to be targeted spending, in our view, in areas that will really help people get through a very difficult time and also get over the fear, the fear that was there and was encouraged in some ways, we need to now come out of that as a country. And yes. uh, look at that. So, so I, I'm on your look, we've got a, a, a tag in, in, in support of the people of Ukraine. And, and I wanna close our conversation a little bit and you know we can't ignore what that is in terms of a changed environment uh, for us as Canadians. Um, have you been satisfied with, uh, with the extent of the federal government's response to this, given that we have really the third largest Ukrainian population in the world in our country? Um, we have 1.3 million 
uh, Canadians of Ukrainian descent, at least. And that's from the, the last uh, census of 2016 uh, that we have data for. Um, what more do you think Canada could be doing in, in all of this without getting into the, you know, the, the NATO uh, machinery uh, and what what that does um, is what else is there available? Do you think that uh, hasn't been overturned yet uh, in terms of a stone by the uh, by the Liberals? I may be somewhat biased in my view on this conflict because I studied Soviet studies at UBC in my undergrad years, so I feel uh -huh. like uh, suddenly my degrees become oh so relevant again um, uh, as we see Putin with I wouldn't necessarily even say Soviet ambitions as much as it seems czarist ambitions for a uh, recreation of uh, the Russian empire. And we have seen what we have called out and the government has called out as war crimes happening against civilians in Ukraine. Uh, my husband is, uh, his background is part Scottish and part Ukrainian. So um, it gets real and personal real fast when you have so many Canadians of Ukrainian descent uh, that we all know or are related to or married to, um, and they're very, very concerned about their country, and they should be, because we see the purposeful bombing of civilian targets, apartment buildings, hospitals, art centers. Uh, play, uh, mm -hmm. They try and make a deal for... Uh, a humanitarian corridor, and then they use that as a way to strafe those those people. We've heard of people in maternity hospitals, red lines. Uh, we've heard of the use of thermobaric weapons, uh, which is just one down from nuclear. Thermobaric weapons literally suck the air right out of a person's lungs. These are uh, cruel uh, weapons meant to uh, destroy the morale of a country, meant to strike at its heart. So. Uh, the Ukrainians and Ukraine are in very tough in this conflict. Our uh, push from the conservative side was to react quicker, more fully, and sooner. Uh, this was not happening. Uh, the government started with non-lethal aid in bits and pieces. We pushed for lethal as well as non-lethal aid because this was clearly a unilateral aggression. It's not... People say it's a conflict. Well, to me, conflict means more it's two-sided. Uh, that's really not what's happened here. We saw the Russian military building up on the borders of Ukraine, over 100,000 troops. I think it got up to 140,000 or so, um, clearly with an intent. So uh, this uh, is something we think both lethal and non-lethal uh, aid should have been sent sooner. Having said that, we also have NATO commitments and uh, the NATO allies, I believe, have actually come together in a stronger, more, as it has evolved, united way and quicker than perhaps Russia contemplated. Uh, I am the shadow minister for national defense, so I am getting news sources from all over the world every day on, on what's happening there. But there is... Um, terrible, terrible devastation. Um, a city like Mariupol, uh, we're hearing up to 90% devastated. And perhaps uh, some Ukrainians 
still buried in rubble there or hiding out, uh, but it, it's really quite terrible. I've been asked, well, what can we do here at home? Of course, uh, giving of aid by individuals is important. Being willing to take Ukrainians in when they can get here is important. We've asked the government to streamline immigration for Ukrainian refugees, much like they did for the Syrian refugees. They haven't fully embraced that, but this is what is needed to get people out into safety. Most Ukrainians we are in uh, communication with don't want to come here permanently. What they want is safe haven for a while so they can then go home and rebuild when this conflict is over. And as you know, uh, the men of Ukraine have stayed behind to fight. It's vastly um, the infirm or women and children who have managed to get out, but they've left in the millions and neighboring countries are trying to take them in and, and acting with great humanitarian compassion. So uh, this isn't over. The Ukrainians have put up a fight I don't think was anticipated. I think that when Russia moved into the Crimea uh, now many years ago, 2014, when all that was going on, and things seemed to settle out and normalize, I think he thought he would go in there take it over quicker and that somehow it would normalize. I don't see this ever normalizing really vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Russia and the rest of the, um, of the nation states who believe in the rule of law and believe in a rules order uh, of uh, international commitments. So, you know, this, uh, it's very concerning. The government is, I, we're getting mixed messages. We have the Minister of Foreign Affairs saying things like, well, Canada is just a middle power. We're not a military power. What we're good is convening and hoping and helping diplomacy happen. To me, that is an insult to anyone who's ever put on our uniform or those veterans who fought in Afghanistan and Korea uh, who are very much still around and many in our families fought in two world wars. We are heroes. Canadians are heroes and warriors when called upon. And we have always um, shown that we had what it takes. So the present minister of national defense seems to understand that better than the minister of uh, global affairs, but that's concerning. And now yeah. with the coalition government, uh, because they do want to bring that in, there's been three uh, NDP members who have criticized the support for Ukraine. And they, they published a white paper a while back uh, that called for a complete pullout from NATO. So who's in charge on this file now is what we're concerned about. And are the Liberals uh, going to keep up with their NATO commitments, get us up to 2% of spending? We're at 1.2 to 1.3 now and fulfill our uh, stated missions with NATO because we are very vulnerable in our Arctic and our North. We're vulnerable generally, but we need upgrading of NORAD systems. We need upgrading of our abilities to deal with uh, an attack from the north where we have both Russia and China making larger and larger claims up there. Yeah. Uh, uh, 
conclude the conversation with with one other question, and, and I think it does speak to uh, the sentiment and the confusion that I think some Canadians have about all of this. I mean, here we are, um, the the second largest Ukrainian country outside of Ukraine, uh, attacks on what really are our extended families in so many cases, and and yet we're we're in behind the the NATO shield, uh, which is not an aggressive sh uh, an aggressive force at all at this stage. I've heard um, Liberal MP Hetty Fry on the radio in the last day talking about how we're on the cusp of World War III, and she made it sound as if it was somewhat inevitable. Um, as somebody who who does get uh, briefings now, uh, who does understand uh, the ground there, um, can you? Can you give me a, uh, your your outlook on this in, in a minute or so uh, of whether you believe this is actually uh, resolvable through negotiations or whether we're going to be drawn into something far more significant as Canadians and, and whether in fact that might be the thing that, that is the, the morally correct thing to do considering how many families uh, have have relatives in that country that are being pummeled every day. It's a very pressing and sobering question, and I think most of us find it hard to believe that in 2022 we're even faced with such a question, but we are. And this is why early on we were pressing uh, the Liberal government to um, not just send rifles and protective vests and ammunition, but to send anti-tank missiles, anti-aircraft missiles, because the response was more in the way initially, and not just us, of economic sanctions, some of them very strong. We have a person who's shown that he has naked ambition and that he really doesn't prioritize human life the way we do. And he is not running a democracy. And he has the ability to start a war and end a war. And it is so centralized within uh, his power base in his country that I am concerned that as, I mean, NATO is a defense alliance. It isn't an offense alliance. He talks about it like it is, but it never has been. And it wasn't set up for that. We, we do have troops from various countries uh, in neighboring areas, uh, but not in large numbers, not like the kind of numbers he invaded Ukraine with. So I don't have an answer for it um, other than to say, I think we have to be very realistic about who it is we're faced with. And the fact that his uh, concerns are not our concerns. And he has decided that he wants a greater territory and a greater territorial buffer, even though he wasn't under threat. And Ukrainians decided some years ago that they wanted a democracy and they gave up their nuclear weapons in order for the guarantee of sovereignty, all of which has been broken. So sooner or later, uh, if this aggression does not cease very soon and families are affected, as you've said, both directly and indirectly, 
uh, Western nations, democratic nations, may have to take even stronger steps than they want to. They may be forced into it. Or he may go into a NATO allied country and then Article 5 is uh, set in motion, which means that we're all NATO um, allied nations would have to defend that nation. We also worry about China's ambitions in Taiwan and where this may lead there in the Indo-Pacific. Well, we could talk for a couple of hours. We could. <laughs> we could. Um, but uh, but I, I thank you for the conversation today. Um, it's uh, These are uh, very, very tricky times, uh, yes. needless to say, and, and that's an understatement. Uh, but I want to thank you today for your time, Carrie Lynn. Thank you very much. It's good to see you again. Take care. Good to see you. Carrie Lynn Finley is the MP for South Surrey White Rock. Uh, she's the Conservative uh, Shadow Critic for Defence. And, uh, and a former cabinet minister in the Harper government. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief at Business in Vancouver. Thanks so much for watching.